you know the difference between unity and union? You know, it's one thing to put people together, and that's called a union. But it's a different thing to actually create unity amongst people. For example, this. Here's the best way for me to paint that picture for you. If you take two cats and you tie them together by their tails, I know some of you are like, Kevin, you've done this before. No, I've never actually done this, okay? Uh, I, I could, I could. So Adam, watch your cats. I'm just saying that. But you take two cats and you tie them together by their tails and you throw them over a, a, a clothesline. Okay, what you've done is you've created a union. And what, but that's not unity, right? What are those cats going to be doing? Scratching and clawing and fighting and going through. Just because you put people together doesn't mean there's going to be unity. I mean, how many of us have seen this in different marriages? Somebody puts a ring on it. Oh, I put the ring on it. We're great, right? Well, no. Just because you put the, just because you get married doesn't mean there's this perfect union uh, with, or unity within the relationship. No, there's work that goes into it to create unity in the relationship. This is true in sports teams. This is true in families. This is true just because you put people together doesn't mean there's going to be unity. But unity is something beautiful. Unity is when different people with different beliefs and, and, and convictions and ideas, when they come together with a common goal, a common vision. And that is where there is true beauty and power. For example, uh, movie, Remember the Titans. Now, some movies I will watch again and again and again. Remember the Titans is one of those movies I watch again and again and again. And in that movie, it, it's about uh, this, this high school in Alexandria, Virginia, and uh, they were going to force these two different schools to integrate. You had a black high school and a white, white high school. They were going to force these schools to integrate. And it created all sorts of problems. There was racial tensions. There was a lack of trust between the two schools. And so the movie is about these, this football team. And they take these two different football teams and they're, they're, they're throwing them in together and saying, now you need to go be something. Well, the movie goes through all the challenges they face. And, and it happens, uh, they go to this football camp. They're trying to get this team rallied together, trying to figure out how to play football together. And it's just bad. They're just fighting with one another. They can't get past the racial issues. And, and Denzel Washington, uh, in his uh, character, one of the most powerful of the scenes, he, ta- he wakes these kids up early in the morning, like 4.30 in the morning. He's like, we're going for a run. And he runs and he takes them to the Gettysburg National Cemetery. And again, this is a group of high school kids struggling with race issues, struggling to figure out how to come together. And he takes them to the Gettysburg National Cemetery, and this was his speech. His speech said this. Men, this is where they fought the Battle of Gettysburg. 50,000 men died right here fighting the same fight that we are still fighting today. Listen to their souls, men. Listen and take a lesson from the dead. Because if we don't come together right now on this hallowed ground, we too will be destroyed just like they were. I don't care if you like each other. But we will respect one another. And I don't know, maybe we might just even learn how to play this game like men. And it was at that moment that this team came together that united these boys 
And they said, you know, yeah, we may have these differences, but we're fighting for a bigger goal. We're fighting for something bigger than this. And they overcame their challenges to become one of the only integrated schools in Virginia and of winning the state championship as a high school, which is pretty exciting. Because they figured out, how do we come together? How do we take this diversity that we have and be united? Obviously, the church, we're fighting for more than football games. We're not trying to win a state championship. We have a bigger purpose and we have a greater impact if we could figure out how we fight for unity and how we find unity in the church. We've been in a series for a couple of weeks now. Actually, we're a couple months in through the book of Acts, and it is amazing. I love seeing the way that the church started. I love seeing how God poured out his spirit on the early church, and it's pretty remarkable to see what the Lord has done uh, with them. We are five chapters in, and we have seen just the power of God again and again and again released on the church. We've seen God's blessing, and the church is doing awesome. And now, of course, we know the church doesn't stay that way, because once we get through the book of Acts, the rest of the, the New Testament is Peter and Paul writing letters to fix all the problems that have happened in the church, right? I mean, that's what the rest of the New Testament is. But as we're here today celebrating 10 years as a church, you know, I thought it'd be fitting for us to stop right here. Before we get to some of the more problems we're going to face in the church, let's stop at the very beginning of the church when the church was great. The church was powerful. The church was unified. The church was caring. Let's stop for a moment to when the church was great. Let's say, what are some things that we can learn? What are things that we can prioritize? So we might just be great like that early church. We might just experience that power of the early church, that grace that was on the early church. And maybe these are some, some, some things that we can cast vision towards, point each other to, hold each other accountable so that we might just be great like that early church was. If you have a Bible, we're in Acts chapter 4 today. Acts chapter 4, uh, verses, uh, 4 verses, 32 to 35. And uh, this text is kind of a, a summary statement of what the early church was. This tells you this is what happened with them. And it's kind of this summary statement that says that the church was of one heart and one mind. And they showed incredible care for one another. And I'll tell you what, just to put my cards on the table, that's what I'm hoping to accomplish today. That as a church, as a pastor, I, I want us to be one heart and one mind. I want us to be a place that cares for each other. Because I think if we can do those two things, I think if we could be united under the gospel and we can actually care for one another, I think we might just see God's power and grace continue to be poured out on us as a church. So we're going to look two things that made the church great. Number one, the first thing that made the church great was they had great unity. They had this, this unity in the gospel, and that's what made them great. This is what it said in verse uh, Acts 4, verse 32. It said, the full number of those who believe. Now we're talking, we're not talking just, ten, no, we're talking thousands of people have come to believe so far. And what Luke is saying is, the full number of those, the thousands of people who believed, they were of one heart and one mind. Let me ask you this. You ever, you ever met somebody new 
You ever like, like meet somebody and you're like, man, we have this like deep connection, just this, this natural connection. I'm just so connected to this person, even though we just met, there's just like a kinship with them. This is what happened in the early church. As they were gathered together in the church, they, they felt this deep connection with one another. There was something happening where it's almost like they belonged to one another, something spiritual happening that just drew them to one heart and one mind. Now, I want to clarify something here because sometimes we mix up unity with conformity. See, unity, unity is when God takes a diverse group of people and unites them under a single overarching purpose. And this is unity. Unity is where you have different people with different backgrounds and different things, but they unite under a single purpose. Conformity is not unity. Conformity is when you uh, uh, take a bunch of people and you make them think the same things. They have to read the same Bible. They have to uh, read the same books. They have to like the same songs. They have to dress the same. They have to vote the same. They have to like the same country music. They have to like the same uh, football teams. They have to agree the best way to educate their kids. They have to have the same likes and dislikes. That's conformity. God never asks us for our conformity. God's desire is not to make a bunch of clones so we all look the same and dress the same and talk the same and believe the same and act the same. No, God's call for us is that we be Christians. And what makes us a Christian? Is it agreeing on all those things? No, what makes us a Christian is what Jesus has done in our place. This is what God calls us to do. God calls us not to be clones of each other, but to be Christians, to believe that Jesus died on the cross in our place, to know that we are guilty before God because we're sinners. We are guilty before God. None of us are good enough to earn God's approval. But because of God's great love for us, he sent Jesus to live the life that we couldn't live, to go to the cross and to pay our penalty, to suffer in our place, to die and rise again so we could be freed from Satan and sin and the curse of death and hell so we could have a relationship with God. That is what God calls us to be, is Christians, not clones, but Christians. This is what we're called. And the early church, they understood this. And God's not calling us to be clones, to conform to some other thing. He's calling us to be Christians. And so the early church, you have this diversity of people from different walks of life, different backgrounds, different financial situations, different food preferences, different languages, different politics, different sports teams. And rather than allowing those things to divide them like the world, no, those Christians knew, oh, hold up. Yeah, we have these differences, but these differences are not ultimate. These differences are secondary to the main thing, because what's the main thing? What's the main thing? Jesus and the gospel. The main thing is Jesus, who Jesus is, what he has done, and that he is Lord of all. And these Christians realize, hey, we have all these differences, but this is the thing that we have in common. That Jesus is the overarching purpose. Jesus is the main thing. That is why we gather together. That is why we are here, because of what Jesus has done for us. They knew the answer to the world's problems, the answer to the problems in our lives, the answer to the problems in our family, in our schools, in our community. The answer to those problems is not politics. 
It's not more money. It's not education. No, they understood. No, the problem, the answer to the problem in the world is Jesus. It, it's Jesus. It's not getting everybody to agree the same politics or getting everybody to, to, to agree on the best way to education or, 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 or figure out the best way to do the economy. No, they knew the number one thing is people put their faith in Jesus. And if we can get that figured out, then the rest of those things will begin to shape each other out and figure it out on their own. For them, they knew nothing else mattered but Jesus. And the early church said, you know what? Yeah, we might have all these differences. Financial backgrounds, political views, opinions on how to do this and that. But they knew those things were secondary because number one was all about Jesus. And they took this unity in Jesus and the gospel and they said, this is what we're about. We're united under this and I tell you what, as I think about here, we're celebrating 10 years as a church. You know, we're here today because that, that early church was unified under the gospel. They said, this is what's most important. And they took that message into Jerusalem and then Judea and to Samaria and then to Yakima to the ends of the earth. And we're here today believing in what Jesus has done because they were united under that message. And they took that message serious and said, this is what it is all about, folks. No, that church was great because they were united under the gospel. But it goes beyond that. They were united under the gospel, but number two, they also had this Visible care for one another. This very tangible, visible care. Here's, again, here's the text. Acts chapter 4, verse 32. It says, those who believed were of one heart and one soul, and no one said that anything belonged to him that was his own, but they had everything in common. Verse 34 says, there was not a needy person among them. Many were landowners uh, and had houses that they sold, and they brought the proceeds and laid them at the apostles' feet, who distributed to each who had need. There's incredible care that's displayed through those verses. See, it's one of the things that we can claim, and this is what happens in church, is oftentimes we claim that we are family. We claim that we're united together. We've got unity. We're, we're there. We're claiming it. But how do we know for sure that there's actually a unity and there's actually a family and a care and a love for one another? How do you know? Proof is in the pudding. Where did that saying come from? Proof is in the pudding. The proof is in the pudding. I don't, know where, I don't even know. I don't know what I'm talking about right now. I'm going off deep ends. Uh, but this idea of like, like, how do you actually know that you, I mean, we can all claim to have a love for other people, but you can't really know until you can see it. You see, last week we had a number of men that went off to man camp and it was a, a great weekend. And one of the things that the speaker shared is he said, listen, if you believe the gospel, there are implications for your life. If you're one of those people that says, yes, I believe what Jesus has done for me, then he said there are implications for believing the gospel. Number one is that Jesus is your top priority. Number two, that serving is a way of life. And number three, this is significant. Because if, if you believe in the gospel, then we become others-focused. 
that if, if you're somebody who has actually received the gospel, then this is one of the implications that you should see in your life, that you are others-focused. Because how you treat one another is a visible expression of your faith. How we treat other Christians is how we show what our faith looks like. Our unity in the church is seen in how we treat one another. Now, I know, I don't know about you, but I look at this text and I'm kind of like, it almost sounds like communism, right? All these people, they had land, none of it was their own. They shared it with everybody. No, it's not communism. Communism was forced. Communism basically says uh, uh, what's, what's yours is everybody else's. And it was, it was forced on them. But that's not what's happening here. The early church was all voluntary. The early church was, you know what? I care so much about the people around me. I am so committed to you. That's what's, what's mine is yours. I'm willing to share what I have. You've got a need. You've got an issue. Man, I've got something. I'll, I'll, I'll provide for it. Why? Because I care. Because I love. Because I'm concerned. And this becomes the, the visible expression of their care. Or we can all claim, oh yeah, I love these people. But can you actually see that love? And this goes so much greater than just material care. This goes so much more than material care. This is where the church begins to bear one of those burdens. They start sympathizing with one another. They're praying for one another. They're walking through life. In a very real sense, this is where the church, this is where they belong together. That there was a kinship. We're in it together. You're walking through this, I'm walking with you. You're struggling, I'm struggling with you. You're down, hey, I'll meet you when you're down. You're celebrating, we'll get up and we'll celebrate together. Cookies all around, let's do this thing. In fact, Francis Schaeffer wrote a book on the marks of a Christian. And this is what he said. He said, the most persuasive mark of a Christian, the most persuasive mark that you are actually a Christian is a visible love for the body of Christ. When Christians visibly care for one another, unbelievers recognize there's something different about them even if they can't understand their complicated doctrinal formations. Yeah, it's how we care for one another that shows the world who Jesus is in a powerful way. This early church, they had this unity under the gospel. They had this visible care for one another. And what was the result of those two things? Verse 33. It says, with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of Jesus. This word great is fun because uh, uh, the word great actually means mega in the original text. Okay, so it's not just like this good power. No, it's this, this mega power, this humongous, this ginormous power, this power that is overwhelming. And as the apostles are there, as they're giving testimony to Jesus, they had this, this ginormous, mega, overwhelming power with their message. Where did this mega power come from? Well, certainly it came from the gospel. I mean, that's what they said. They're giving testimony to the resurrection of Jesus. Romans 1.16 says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God. So yes, this mega power comes because they're holding truth to the gospel. But there's also this mega power that comes because of this deep invisible uh, unity and care that the early church had. 
I mean, it's kind of like, like the apostles are there. They're preaching. And they're like, hey, we've got this message about Jesus. And this message is powerful in itself. But you pair that message with a church who is visibly loving one another, who is sacrificing for one another. And it's kind of like you put those two things together and that's that mega power. And that is the dynamite that is just blowing up. And people are like, what is going on in this church? You've got this message that is literally transforming people to love one another, to sacrifice for one another. And it is powerful. In fact, in the early days of Billy Graham's ministry, Billy Graham, a great evangelist of the past, he went to a town called Antuna, Pennsylvania to do a crusade. He's going to do one of his evangelistic crusades, Pennsylvania. And he gets there and he finds there's so much disunity and dissension among those churches. All the churches were arguing and fighting over what this uh, crusade was going to look like. The crusade was a total failure. It was just, it was, it, was, it was horrible. And Billy Graham made a decision in the very beginning of his ministry after that event. He said, you know what? I'm never going to go to a city unless there is a unified support on the Christian community. Because we can take the message of the gospel and there's power in that message. But when we Christians can actually love each other well, that's where that mega power comes from. Where all of a sudden it's that message now has a visible expression. Hey, this message really does change people. It really does cause people to live differently, to love each other differently, to, to, to become family. You've got the message and the people coming together, and that's where that mega power comes from. Not only did that, did they have the great power, but they also had great grace. Verse 33 and great grace came upon them all. Again, this mega grace came upon them. Grace is simply unmerited favor. This was the blessing of God, the favor of God. Coming on the church, not because they deserved it, not because they're awesome, not because they did a bunch of stuff, but simply this was the blessing and favor that God was bestowing upon them. There almost seems to be there almost seems to me, as I look at this, a connection between God's, uh, uh, of a church and people being faithful to God's plans and God's favor in their lives. Like, this is not prosperity here, but there seems to be a connection. Like, if we want God's blessing in his favor, we want God's grace in our life, it seems to me here that there's a correlation between faithfulness to God's plans and his blessing and favor. Those two things go hand in hand. And here in this early church, this church that was great, let me just simplify it for you. This is, this is what this message is all about. The church was great. They had this great grace and great power on them because they were unified under the gospel and visibly caring for one another. That is what made the church great. And as I think about to us being 10 years old today, I want to be a part of a great church, which doesn't mean you've got a great preacher. It doesn't mean you've got great ministry. It doesn't mean you've got great uh, music leaders and great programs. No, a great church 
is when we can be a people that are unified under the gospel of Jesus and that will visibly care for one another. In fact, as I think about these past 10 years, some of my favorite moments, some of the best parts of the past 10 years have been related to those two very specific things. When we came together and were united under the gospel and when we actually cared for one another. I mean, I think about Christmas outreach. We've done the Christmas outreach a number of different times. Christmas outreach was great. Uh, we rented the Seasons Performance Hall downtown. Uh, we used to do church there for, for nine years. It was great. Uh, the Christmas outreach is we rented that place out, and then we went through the lighted Christmas parade. Everybody that sat out in the cold to watch all the farm instruments with all the Christmas lights and everything, and they sat in their coal, they sat on, on their biscuits and froze and it got cold. We'd invite them to the seasons. Hey, come warm up at the seasons. We had cookies and coffee and cocoa and all these different stuff. We had these uh, great Christmas music, and uh, we played some dumb games and gave some prizes out. And it was this opportunity to say, hey, let's, let's come and continue this Christmas celebration. It was awesome. I loved it. We had 500 people come into the building. I remember we did this event for a couple of years, and I started looking and saying, man, this event is kind of a, a big production. There's a lot that goes into it. There's a lot of hands up required. And I'm looking, I'm like, we've done this event. And I start thinking about the church, and I'm like, I don't think anybody who came to that event has now become a part of our church. And I remember thinking, man, is this just a waste? Why are we doing all this work to, to put on this big event, to, to make this after party, and, and when our church hasn't grown because of it? I remember a conversation with one of our elders, <laughs> and he said, you know, the beauty of this event is not how much the church has grown. He said, Kevin, the beauty of this event was how the entire church came together to be united under the gospel. Because I tell you what, it took every person in this church to make that event happen. There were people that were baking cookies for a whole week because we had to have, I don't know, 1,500 cookies for that event. There were people that showed up and they're making hot cocoa and hot cocoa is flying all over the place and they're looking like they're, you know, it was, it was their hair's all a mess and, and they're just baking cocoa. You've got people trying to chase all these kids around. You've got people. We had Mike Hubbard dressed up as, as Joseph and Mary and, and going through the parade, handing out flyers to invite kids. Hey, come to the seasons after the... And they froze their tails off as they're going and doing that. The entire church came together so that we could stand on a stage and tell people about the God who loved them and sent their, his son Jesus to die for them. And I tell you what, that was a really good event for our church because we rallied together and said, this is what we're about. Oh, everybody had different opinions about how to make the best cocoa and people had different opinions about what songs you're allowed to sing at Christmas outreach. But none of those things, none of those things mattered because we were united under the opportunity to tell people about a God who loves them. That event was a success because of what it did for our church because we were united together in the gospel. And I think about it on the flip side, I think about the care of the people. I think uh, a couple years ago, uh, our son Ollie got into a uh, dirt bike accident and, uh, and it was uh, 
one of those, he had to jump in, a, in an ambulance and, and drive over to Harborview to have surgery to fix a, a broken jaw. And those are times that Sam and I look back, and that was a hard couple of days. But the joy of that was our phones were constantly blown up from people in the church checking on us, meals that were being provided, resource provided. And even in the middle of seeing your kids suffer, man, the church cared for us. And that was more comforting than we could ever communicate, seeing people rally together to say, we're with you. We love you. We care for you. We got you. And I'll tell you what, those two things, seeing the church rally together and be united for the gospel and seeing the church care for us in visible, simple ways, that is the power of God. That is the grace of God. That is when the church is great. It is a feeling beyond all other feelings. And I'll tell you what, church isn't automatic. We don't always get to have those power and that grace. We are always united under the gospel. We're not always caring for one another because like, remember the Titans, it's something we have to fight for. It's something we have to fight for. I mean, we all recognize how divided our country has been in the last couple of years. Politics and COVID and, and all those other things. We all felt that division in the church because we all have strong opinions about how, how all those things should shake out. This is why, as a church, we can't lose sight of what's most important. Those things are important. They're, they're valuable. But what's most important is Jesus and what he's done for us. That is where, as a, as a body of Christ, can we keep the main thing the main thing? Can we keep the gospel as the thing that unites us together? And then as we unite it under that, can we, can we choose not to be divided over, over those other things, but to say, you know what? We're united in the gospel, so I'm going to show my love for you. And I'm going to walk through life with you. And that means I'm going to have to give you grace. That means you're going to have to give me grace. That means there's going to have to be forgiveness. There's going to have to give a benefit of the doubt to other people at times. But if the church is going to be great, if we're going to experience the power and the grace of God, those are the two things we've got to hold as a priority is number one, to be united into the gospel, and number two, to care for one another. And I'll tell you what, <laughs> I'm going to cut this because of time, but when I think about our core values as a church, our family values. We are a gospel people. We belong together. We love outrageously. We're biblically rooted. We celebrate progress, not perfection. Every one of those things is shaped to help us as a church be united under the gospel and to care for one another. That is what it is about. So let me ask, as I think about these 15 folks that came forward this morning. You know, over 10 years of being a part of a church, you get to see the power and grace of God poured out multiple times in the church. So let me just ask you this question. What could God write in your story? 
What could God do in your life if you committed yourself to the church? Committed yourself to say, I'm going to unite with these people under the gospel and I'm going to visibly care for them and love and sacrifice and serve. What could God do in your life? What could God do in your personal faith if you made that commitment? Say, what if I made this commitment for 10 years of pursuing these things together? Being a gospel people, of belonging together, of loving. What could God do in your life, in your family, in your neighborhood, in your marriage? Beyond that, what could God do in our city? If every one of us in this room made that commitment for 10 years, man, let's just be committed to what God is doing here. Let's be committed to being united in the gospel, committed to loving one another. What could God do in our city? And I tell you what, that question gets me excited of what God could do. That we could see the power and the grace of God poured out again and again and again. Think about the stories we could tell in 10 years from now. I've used all my time. Let me pray.